0: Hello, Chum Su, everyone, and welcome to Anakot Future podcast, which we talk about the future of Cambodia, ranking from economics, development, democracy, and to Cambodian dream. I am Samut Ming, or you can call me Ming. I am a co-member of Political Coffee, and today I am uh, the co-host of this podcast. But first of all, I would like to chum su our um, guest speakers. Chum su,
1: My name is Adam. I am a um, consultant on natural resource governance.
2: Uh, I'm Charadin, currently the Deputy Director of the Cambodian Institute for Cooperation and Peace, known as CICP, also the Coordinator of the Global Center for Mekong Study, uh, or shortly known as GCMS Cambodia Center.
0: Okay, thank you very much, Bong, for um, the introduction. And today I am very pleased um, to discuss with our um, guest speakers with my co-host, Andrew.
3: Hello, Meng, and hello, everyone else. Yes, I'm Andrew Hafner, reporter at Southeast Asia Globe, on a Cut Future Podcast is a Southeast Asia Globe production brought to you by support with Conrad Adnauer Stiftung.
0: Thank you, Andrew. Um, so our discussion today, we're going to discuss about the Mekong River. And the Mekong River, I just want to um, introduce a little bit like um, what is the Mekong River and why we want to uh, discuss about this topic. So uh, the Mekong River is one of the greatest and one of the most important water resources in Southeast Asia. And the mighty Mekong um, runs for more than 4300 Kilometers um, from Tibet um, plateau through China, Myanmar, Laos, Thailand, Cambodia, and Vietnam. And since we have a lot of controversial issues in the Mekong regarding dam project to environmental, you know, issue and water governance. So today we're gonna go a little bit deeper into that issue.
3: Yes, and one thing we're gonna talk about, as uh, Meng alluded to, is this growing crisis of low water levels throughout the river. In Cambodia, we have the the Great Lake of the country, the Tonle Sap. Very vital fishery, which is not doing so well, as we'll get into later in the program. We have drought, we have climate change and upstream damming, mostly in Laos and China, but in some of the other northern reaches of Cambodia too. Been identified as key causes of low water. Uh, China has disputed the damming as being a major factor. Uh, Other hydrologists say it definitely is. So we'll get into that later. The topic of the low water in the Mekong, in general, is essential to regional and international cooperation between the six Mekong countries and outside partners, such as the U.S. So today, some major regional frameworks for cooperation include Mekong River Commission, mm-hmm. the China-led Lansang-Mekong cooperation, and the newly named Mekong-U.S. partnership, which up until a couple of weeks ago was the Lower Mekong Initiative. So what the name change means... I'm not sure. We'll talk about that a little bit later.
0: Yeah, thank you, Andrew. The first one that we're going to discuss about before we go to the cooperation that my co-host Andrew has just mentioned, I want to know regarding the crisis of the um, Low West, why is this like happening? Is there any issue in the Mekong um, River? My question may be for Miss um, Bicharudin.
2: I- I'm not... Uh hydrologist or environmentalist by myself but I would rather look at it in a bigger perspective the crisis in the Mekong primarily okay uh, without, goes without saying the climate change but um, adding to that uh, cases is the increasing or unceasing um, construction of the dam um, for hydropower uh, electricity and all that mainly in the upper stream we have china who primarily doing a lot of it but in the lower stream we have laos who claims to be or proclaims to be the uh, or aspire to be the battery of asia and in that regard laos utilizing a, a mekong to construct dams and to supply electricity, but also stowing out to the um, other countries, the neighboring country across the region. In that case, I would um, argue that on top of climate change, the dam construction plays a big role in the changing of those ecologies and, and other environmental factors of the Mekong itself.
0: Yeah, thank you, Bong. And um, since uh, Mr. Hudong is the environmental and water government an expert in this field, why is this happening, the crisis of the lowest water level in the Mekong?
1: I agree with that uh, two points that mentioned it. And then adding into that, the third point is the unregulated human activity. For example, like we have seen an experience that the clearing of the flooded forest and grassland in the Mekong floodplain, in Tonle Sab, especially, and it keeps expanding, that without even uh, having an actual record, Mm -hmm. how much it's been expanding. And all of these are very important as well in terms of the fish habitat and uh, rotting organics that uh, give a good sediment and nutrition to the lower part of the Mekong, for example, the Mekong Delta. So this is the third point that I add into the, I totally agree with the previous point, that it's not only that climate change, specifically El Nino, but also those dam upstream, it's already 11, Mm -hmm. and in Laos, already a couple, and that we have to look into the tributary of the Mekong as well, like San, Seikong, Sripok. So two of these three rivers have some dam as well. Then that, you know, a combination of this, I would say, crisis or, or, or issue.
0: Yes, you are mentioning that the root cause of the crisis is the combination of human activities, and also the dam, like you know, projects, and also the climate change. This is the case that happened in the Mekong River, and how about the case in the Tonle Sap? Is it the same thing or is it different?
1: Well, uh, basically, we call Tonle Sap as a beating heart of the Mekong, and ecologically connected, and so at least last year it happened the uh, plot parts came late. So it usually takes like several months for this uh, when the tunnel is expanding like five times. And so it's it, uh, become a very important time for catching fish mm-hmm. and uh, economic activity sort of agriculturally. And this time, this year, we are seeing it as well. Because last year, this time, so we can see basically the bottom neck of the Tunle Sab is dried. It is like, it's like a normal dry season. It's not even a monsoon season.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And this time we are seeing it because la- last year it's only last six weeks. So the important occasion is like very short. So people cannot really benefit from it. I heard from some of the news, covered. So they used to earn like 70 US dollars per day or 10, 20 uh, kilograms of mm-hmm. fish. But this year, they don't even uh, you know, have enough for their boat gasoline or just a few kilograms. Many fishermen disappear. They didn't expect that. That From last year, they didn't expect that fish can come or there won't be big fish. And if this year is repeating, next year, is still uh, difficult, hard to tell.
3: Yeah, and I think the people of Cambodia draw the majority of their protein from fish harvested mm-hmm. from the tunnel south. I guess if this low water level and the environmental degradation continues, we could be looking at some major food security issues in the years ahead. So, yeah, speaking of the Tonle Sap and the role it plays in feeding Cambodia, feeding this region, we heard in the news recently that this lack of reversal to the Tonle Sap that we're seeing this year, this rare phenomena that feeds the lake, might be the new normal. That reversal that we're dependent on just may not happen now as the water gets slow what do you make of that is that something that people are are talking about that they're concerned about in Mekong circles
1: I think this is really um, among at least the fishermen and then among the civil society group who you know working related to this field they are really concerned about this and then looking forward to see what happening uh, next but now this year we already seen that if you look at from the satellite imagery, we already see in last month in September, late September, so the water already delayed from the Mekong flow. It's supposed to, you know, have more water, but we still have not have seen it yet. This year could be repeating. So if nothing change at the all this mechanism and then country are still doing business as usual, I don't feel positive for this for the new normal.
2: Yeah. Other thing with the um, reversal flow, just to add to Mr. Dom's earlier point on fisheries, I think people living are, are along Tunle Sap also benefit primarily from the bringing of uh, fertilized along the river, uh, the Tunle Sap itself. So people usually actually plant a lot of um, crops and that, and actually thousands of family, hundreds of families have been benefiting from it. Now there's no reverse flow, meaning there's no uh, fertilizer actually brought forward by the river to fit the crops and harvest and that. And that can also change the life of the people mm-hmm. living surrounded the Tonle itself. Now, whether or not it's a new normal, um, we gotta we gotta ask. Uh, I agree with Mister Dom. There haven't been um, a major policy uh, looking into the, that so-called new normal yet. If Tonle Sap were no longer making a reverse flow, but uh, we have seen people trying to adjust themselves individually. Perhaps now that you cannot catch any fish, you cannot be a fisherman. You have to change or jobs or something else, something like that. But that adaptation has been seen to to taking place on the individual level, but not really on any actions from authority or something like that.
3: Talk about business as usual and what could possibly be done to, uh, to reverse some of the things that we're seeing. I would imagine that these international partnerships, these cooperative mechanisms play a pretty big role. Uh, as I mentioned in the intro, we have these three, but really we have many different bodies and, and agreements and partnerships that are Theoretically working to help Mekong issues be handled a little more sustainably, maybe. But what can you tell us about the interplay of these different groups in managing the water resources of the Mekong?
2: Let me kick start by saying that there has, the, for some interpretation, there are more than 10 mechanisms on board within the sub corporations, the first of which is actually coming from ADB, which is GMS, greater. Mekong sub region economic corporations. And then you have more of on the governmental level, like Mekong Ganga by India. Um, you have Mekong Japan, Mekong Korea, a lower Mekong initiative. A bit. So it's been 10 years. They just now just changed a few last week to US Mekong partnership, which I'm going to talk more about that. Uh, The last one to join uh, on board was um, Lam Chang-Mekong Corporation led by China. Now, thanks to LMC, with LMC coming to existence, it seems like a revitalization of many other mechanisms before. Now, uh, people usually link, for some speculation, they link Mekong Corporation, those sub corporation, as an attempt to say, oh, hey, look, we have a lot of mechanism on board, so th- there must be a lot of link on the water resource management and all that. But unfortunately, there's no. Mekong River Commission is an intergovernmental body, which is uh, more working more on the technical level. To manage uh, the Mekong, unfortunately, the mission doesn't have much uh, political mandates to do. So they can advise, they can do research on the technical level, but they don't have they have don't have the mandates or right to, to guide or advise the specific government not to take actions to harm the Mekong. They have done a lot of research and technical advice to the, the government, saying that now, in order for Mekong to sustain, we have to leave the Mekong alone for ten years meaning untouched, no more dam, no more, you know, those sort of things, for 10 years. So then, within that 10 years, uh, Mekong can actually recalibrate and then come back into the normal flow as it was before, and that considered to be sustained. Uh, look, uh, how can you leave Mekong for 10 years? <laughs> That's the thing. The government um, is the first government among all of those intergovernmental bodies that actually signed off and saying that we committed to work with relevant authority and, and protect Mekong, untouched the Mekong for 10 years. We we were the one who signed it off. Not, but in order for that to take place, all of the uh, Mekong country has to commit to that altogether. But we haven't seen any. Apart from that, Andrew was mentioning what are the role of those mechanisms that works to collaborate together to, to for water resource management. In fact, um, I would argue the opposite, saying they they haven't done anything to cooperate on the water management, water resource management. But we have seen more of a using water resource as a battleground to compete for regional dominance and on this kind of thing. And this is unfortunate. I mean, we supposed to have those on board, but water resource um, or water governance is, actually, is just one of the agenda, which is technical. But it hasn't really been much put up to play. Most of the mechanisms still working toward economic development still, but the resource governance is very hard to actually put forward.
1: Um, because the issue become quite obvious, especially the, the record law of the Tun uh, Sap, for example. Then recently, the uh, through at least the uh, Mekong-Lan Cooperation meeting, the premier of China and the leader in the, the Mekong country, they have met. And China did talk
3: about their commitment to share data. Well, earlier this year, we saw that Eyes on Earth report that garnered a lot of press, right? And that made the case that we do need more transparency coming out of China. We do need to know more about the flow of water as it's coming down into the the upper stretches of the Mekong. Uh, Yeah, and that report started a lot of conversation, I think. I know we had people in some countries who I think felt very validated in having that information. And then we saw China pushing back and trying to put out their own information, maybe to counter that, pointing to the drought being as a bigger factor than the damming. What do you think, uh, Um,
2: Actually, the Eyes on Earth reports was not only been, not rejected, not partially opposed by UI Chinese for countering the facts and all but even Mekong River Commission counterbacks some of the facts that has been released by Eyes on Earth. So we've been questioning all these validities and accuracy of those informations using satellites. So what can we say? With the with the datas, uh, the the case of sharing um informations and this kind of things, uh, it's good if the if the governments um has been committed to it. But look what China said: China is committed. So data has been important in GCMS itself. We are part of Lam chang Mai Kong uh, Track Two, where we're looking at this and uh, sharing information, being transparent is always on the agenda. But the reality is yet to be seen.
3: Right, and it's kind of a power mismatch too, right? I mean, obviously, being that China is, uh, at this point, a rising superpower, uh, the the nations of Southeast Asia combined, quite powerful, or can be, but individually not, maybe an effective counterweight to China. But then also, they don't bear the same effects of what's happening in the Mekong. Like, we see Vietnam on the end, on the Delta, kind of subject to everything that happens above, and the headwaters being in China automatically kind of puts a little card in their favor as well I think
2: and we mentioned the role of mrc but yeah on on the technical um, level it, it's actually very very important or very prominent but the thing is china is not a member of mrc they're right. just an observer so what can you say i mean if if mrc committed uh, or proposed some certain mechanism they're just a member they're not even a member how can you impose some certain uh, mechanism on on china for example so these are all back and forth um you know, factors of making the mighty Mekong uh, more suffering. Yes, there
0: are a lot of people relying on the resources of the Mekong. And as I have read along the Mekong River in China, there are some relocation of the people who live along um, the Mekong because of the dams, like project, and that is in China. And how about in Cambodia? Is there any case people are relocated to somewhere else because of the uh, dam projects?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think people know, the Lower Sesan Two Dam, northeast Cambodia in Stung Province, mm-hmm. on built on the uh, Sesan River. I think it's about five thousand people been relocated, and it flooded thirty thousand hectare of you know forest land, rice mm-hmm. field, villages. the The problem with the resettlement is, China have their own policy at home, but in Cambodia they they don't even follow their own resettlement policy. There are studies basically done by International River. They look into this one company builds three dams. One in the lower season two, and then the other two they build in, in China. And we look into the compensation package difference, how they compensate people, the livelihood support and stuff are quite lower. So the question is what is the resettlement policy? Cambodia don't have it. Because we are quite junior, right? So, yeah, this is quite uh, a big issue. You know, if we can oppose the project, it happening, and then what is the uh, mitigation, what is the resettlement policy in place? We don't even have that. I remember starting from 2013, when they start clearing the land. So, especially there are indigenous people there as well. For Cezanne too. Yeah, for Cezanne yeah. yeah, too, like the Punong, the Lao ethnic, you know, they have their own culture and tradition. There's no way to calculate it into a monetary value. So it's been problematic.
0: <laughs> yeah, as I have known, the dam project affects not only the people who live in the um, Mekong River, but how about the um, aquatic mammals or species who live in the Mekong River?
1: Actually, there are approximately 800 species, including fish and mammal, reptiles, birds. And amphibian, just taking fish alone because seventy five percent of the population in Cambodia rely on fish and their nutrition, so any change, for example, the delay of the blood power of Sap, uh, would significantly impact that So you know, like we got a revenue of six hundred million u s dollars per year, so I hope there are recent studied. About this impact, for example, when the Mekong water flow delay, they're flowing into the Tunle that uh, how much that would be causing. I, I hope to see that kind of report coming out, but we can make an uh, uh, assumption that that would be significantly impact on that. And then the other species like, for the the birds, 17 endangered species in Tunle Sap, How can you economically uh, uh, calculate it? You know, it it's just an identity. It's just the world heritage, for example. The other thing is the Aravity Dolphin. Like they're living in Krojje province and upstream next to the Laos border in Cambodia. You know, all these things, like, you have no way. And I I have heard that if you look at the report in the uh, Basin Development Page 2, they don't even include the cultural aspect into that. Uh, revenue. They make a prediction that how much they can earn from the dam operation, from selling electricity, how much the uh, fish in that reservoir, how much the uh, aquaculture. But they have no way to include or calculate even the sediment. They don't put in there. But later on, there is another study. I think it's it uh, uh, fairly new in uh, 2017 by the Mafalung University. They put that indicator, and then. Basically, the, the previous study by the Basin Development Plan saying, I'm talking about the next Cascade Dam in the lower Mekong now. That dam already built two, and seven underway. Cambodia want to build two as well. So if this dam is uh, built, this study basically looks into the economic uh, benefit or impact. So the previous study say. If this damn bill, countries like Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, and Laos will totally earn 33.4 billion US dollar, And then they also have a country split as well. But a new study came out and saying it would be minus 7 billion US dollars and country will be lost out of this. And... Because the new study include indicator of sediment flow, indicator of the social cultural, including like how you mitigate
3: things, how you compensate things. These losses that aren't as easy to calculate on just dollars and cents. I mean there are a lot of hidden costs to these kinds of projects, right? I mean the Mekong is one of the most the subregion is one of the most biodiverse in the world from what I've read. Uh there are new species still being discovered. And once you get rid of like the main pillar of that ecosystem We're probably going to lose some of that. It seems inevitable. So when we talk about this region as a region, we always talk about it as these Mekong countries, what the the total of six, including China. It's always broken down into this sort of geopolitical or, or at least like relations between countries. But what I'm wondering is that when we pull out individual nations that depend on the Mekong, like Cambodia, especially Cambodia, what can they do just as one state in this whole thing? What is the role of Cambodia in the sub-region, contributing to its governance, making sure it gets the resources it needs?
2: In fact, we have a lot of talk in this region about that. We don't want Mekong issues to be seen as another South China Sea issue, which getting nowhere up to decades, and it's just devastating the entire um, relations between countries. Cambodia on its own, I would actually... Release my upcoming book chapters with Cambodia 2040s, that is also funded by CAS, on the aspect of Cambodia's role in the Mekong itself. I think one of the aspects that has been overlooked is the already existing uh, ASEAN uh, mechanism on the Mekong as well. But it hasn't been put up to discuss, just because the maritime countries, the six other countries that are not part of the Mekong, don't really perceive Mekong issues as a regional issue or as the ASEAN issues. That is why uh, the existing ASEAN mechanism on the Mekong, the entire things like ASEAN Mekong Basin Corporations, was not being put up much to discussion. My proposition with the book chapters that will be released soon is that they should, Cambodia should take a lead in coordinating the, that existing ASEAN mechanism. Because, frankly, it's the only uh, mechanisms that be is, is inclusive of all the 10 ASEAN countries as one voice. And that goes to say that we will strengthen ASEAN centrality in fixing these issues. Mekong issues is not just about water itself, but if it's not being extra cautious, it could lead to another geopolitical issue just like the South China Sea. And we don't want to see that. We don't want to create another code of conduct on the Mekong, just as we've been discussing for years on the Code of Conduct on South China Sea. I would say, yes, Cambodia should take a lead in making a coordinating role with the existing ASEAN uh, mechanism, putting high emphasis of uh, Mekong issues on the agenda of ASEAN.
1: I would uh, echo that proposition and because, as I mentioned earlier, if, you, if they, they do the dam, Cambodia will be the main loser. And so this, it's fair enough that they need to take the lead. And then uh, a few things that I come up to my mind is obviously we can see the uh, geopolitics between the two superpowers. So Cambodia really have to find balance. Even it is South China Sea or now Mekong become the second hot topic for between the two superpowers. So find the balance. And the important thing is their own approach their own way of dealing with issues. For example, let's say if politics is quite complex, let's go for economic, let's go for energy. How much we really need? We have the, 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 the second least population in the region, like after Laos, so 15, 16 million. How much really energy you, you need? And then what is your economic model? It has to be industrialized or we are doing fine with this captured fish or natural fish. We already have it. Let's go for conservation, and then make a balance between development. There have already been studied out there available for Cambodia or country in the region to take to look at it, take the suggestion, and then any mechanism i I, I would buy into that asean economic Uh, Basin Development Corporation as well, because it's more like strengthening ASEAN instead of one country speaking against the other in order to take side of the one superpower that cause trouble for other superpower too. You know, it's. I mean, we need to avoid the proxy war.
0: Yeah, And, and yeah. in this case, do you think that the Mekong River will be the next oil? Uh, the next oil here means that it's caused trouble like in Middle East, for example, because um, like countries try to fight with each other in order to get oil. And in this case, uh, it seems like the Mekong River is trying to get the water for their own benefits. Do you think that this is going to happen in the Mekong River or is it not?
1: There already is. Like, There are some kind of Tycoon or investor who uh, grab most of the water for their own some kind of large scale economic agriculture and stuff. It's already happened if you look closely. But the thing is, like, how might we, are as the state level, susceptible to all this?
0: Yeah. How about you? Do you have
2: any um thoughts to share with this? Whether or not um Mekong could be another oil in Southeast Asia is a big question. I think it's just short-term, for short-term gains. As we talked earlier, it's all about um, the tap that one has. It's like a putting um, a turn on, turn off the tap of the water in the upstreams and so on. But it's more than that. I think it's, it's really less about water itself. Okay, um, Mekong River is important, but water a resource, the Mek River itself, is just secondary. Um, my thought would this would, would be um, a regional dominance. Whoever have the taps to the water gains the dominance of the regional hegemony. Um, the next thing is, I, I would say it's short-term because it's not sustained. Everyone wants to say, well, we'll turn toward renewable energy because it's, it's the river. You might fully use it one day. And then that's the reason we don't want to uh, stick to this uh, because... It's just short-term, but we have to manage these short-term gains as opposed to long-term interests and longer-term sustainability.
3: Yeah, definitely. I think there's some 60 million people throughout the region who live in the basin who depend on the river for something or another, and these are the people who will be vulnerable to all of these high-level decisions being made, and so many of them don't necessarily have a say in it. So, yeah.
0: Yes, um, before coming to uh, the conclusion of our discussion, um, I would like to ask our guest speakers one question. What is your Cambodian dream? For me, I want to share a bit <laughs> before the guest speaker share. My Cambodian dream is to see, again, a female prime minister who oh, lead the country because I've always been inspired by other countries, especially European Union. They have a lot of female leadership positions and also lead you know big institutions. And how about you, May, you share um, your dream?
1: My dream would be, you know, I always remember that Cambodia is in a lucky location, I would say, or geography, with all the forests that are there. We can avoid many of the storms and then uh, natural disaster and flood. And even though we have decreased, and then we have seen some kind of face, uh, some face, we have faced the natural disaster lately, but hope the remaining can be kept you know, forest ranging from forest river and all the mountain. So all these are our way of resilience. Again the COVID nineteen this is basically the overwhelm interaction or intrusion into the environment. If this is one example that not only Cambodia but other countries need to be uh, more conscious of. So I my dream is basically try to protect our resilience. So we're already rich. Just try to be smarter economically, we'll be fine.
2: And how about you, Bong? Before answering your question, I would like to share a bit. Ten years ago, I enrolled in a university degree in IR without knowing what IR is. And then back then, like, IR fields in Cambodia is very new. But I decided to give it a try anyway it was a good try because I eventually fall into uh, like fall deeply into it and so passionate about it now ten years later I'm who I am today with many hats on both track one and track two diplomacy of Cambodia and in that sense uh, my biggest dream my biggest Cambodia dream is to elevate Cambodia diplomatic level to a higher height. I always feel as if, like looking back into histories and all, we have always been in a very unfortunate uh, diplomatic positions uh, since the um, 1950s. So uh, till now, I still feel is still in an unfortunate position of having a very small diplomatic space to flex and to maneuver around. So my dream will be to see Cambodia in the future having more say in the international agenda. Other countries can be more fair to us. Uh, we are not judged by the way we express, but, the, but also the concern of Cambodian people. Diplomacy is not about one person's say, but it's, and I wish uh, the outsider would look at it as it is, that it does reflect the Cambodian people, 16 million and beyond, of uh, our position in, in the globe, in the world. Uh, and my keyword would be uh, allow Cambodia diplomatic uh, space to maneuver.
0: Yes, um, may may I share that dream with you?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, maybe that's also my
0: dream as well, but I only shared one. Thank you very much, um, our guest speakers, for sharing the dream with us, and especially the interactive and engaging discussion and the topic of the future of um, the Mekong River. I believe that our audience have enjoyed uh, discussion just like I did. And thank you very much, uh, my co-host Andrew, for such being a very great um, co-host as always.
3: Uh, thank you so much, Meg. And thank you so much, the two of you, for joining us here today.
0: Yes, and last but not least, I would like to wish everyone like all the best and success in everything um, you do.
1: Thank you
0: Thank so you. much A good A good good This is an Akut podcast Brought to you by Southeast Asia Globe And Konrad Adina Siltung, Cambodia Produced by John Muller Our theme music by Fair Penly